If you like what I do at Sweater Weather, remember to subscribe, follow, like, share, retweet, wherever you find the show on social media. And consider making a donation to help Sweater Weather keep going and growing. To donate, visit our website at sweaterweatherpod.com, all one word. everybody. Welcome to Sweater Weather. I'm Aaron Giovanone. Great to be back with you. The early years after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War produced a new consensus among Western elites that it was now a good thing to do business with China and develop cultural relations. A fascinating film from 1990 illustrates this moment of history. Bethune, The Making of a Hero, starring Donald Sutherland as Norman Bethune, the real-life Canadian communist doctor who died in China in 1939, providing medical aid to Mao's Eighth Army. Bethune was a swashbuckling humanitarian who became a revered figure of the Chinese Revolution and later a sanctified Canadian national hero too. This $18 million movie was a co-production of Canadian and Chinese state partners and was at the time the most expensive Canadian film ever produced. An ambitious but flawed film. The production was marred by a power struggle between the Canadians involved in the project, the film star, Donald Sutherland, and its screenwriter, Ted Allen. I've recently written about Bethune, the making of a hero, in a piece for Passage magazine. Here to talk with me about Bethune, making of a hero, is Paul Jay. Paul Jay is a journalist and filmmaker, the founder and host of TheAnalysis.News, a video and audio current affairs show. He is past chair of the Documentary Organization of Canada, as well as the founding chair of the Hot Docs Canadian International Documentary Festival. And happily for us, Paul is also the nephew of Ted Allen, the screenwriter of Bethune, and he can offer a unique, unique perspective on this film and uh, the historical background. So Paul, welcome to Sweater Weather. Thank you. Your uncle Ted Allen uh, was born in 1916, died in 1995, was a journalist, author, playwright, and screenwriter. He had a fascinating career that went from reporting in the Spanish Civil War to writing for the London stage to penning scripts for Oscar-nominated films, such as the 1975 movie based on his Montreal childhood, Lies My Father Told Me, which is a really beautiful movie I watched recently, and I highly recommend it to the viewers. Left politics was really important to him too. He was for a while a member of the Communist Party of Canada. And in a 1961 magazine profile of your uncle, um, it was written, quote, it was the young communists who introduced him to the life of culture and art, reading Shakespeare and listening to records of Beethoven in their murky meeting halls. Could you talk a little bit about your uncle's life you know, art, career, and politics? And what are your, some of your memories of him? Well, he was a, a figure that kind of came in and came out of my life as a kid. Uh, I grew up in Toronto, and Ted, for when I was quite young, I guess up to the age of five or six, 
they had a house on the next street over. Uh, his two kids, Julie and Norman, and wife Kate, and and we, when I was quite young, there was a lot of back and forth, which I don't really remember. Um, his daughter, Julie, uh, who's now one of my closest relatives and good friend, also claims to have wiped my bum when I was a kid. She's, <laughs> she's she was just old enough, older than me enough to uh, have that job. Uh, but then they moved to England. Uh, this is, uh, you know, this is during the time of McCarthyism and House of American Activities Committee in the U.S. Uh, so Ted had left L.A. Uh, to come to Toronto, and so had my parents for the same reasons. My father was involved in a mine mill union, which was a you know left wing and communist led union. My mother had been in the circles of the Hollywood Ten. And so, about, I guess it's somewhere around 1950, uh, they come to Toronto, and I'm not sure the date Ted comes back to Toronto, but I think it's sort of around the same time. And then I kind of don't see him for quite a while. He would, you know, I'd see him for a day here, a day there, and it was always kind of exciting because Ted had this, you know, big energy. Uh, you know, when you think of Ted, you think of somebody tall and big, uh, and he was actually quite small, you know, in terms of actual physical height and size, you, you know, he wasn't big, but he had such an energy uh, and such a, a smile uh, that he filled up a room. Um, I actually got to know Ted much better uh, in the last two or three years of his life. Uh, he came to live with me for a little bit at my place in Toronto. Uh, he uh, and his place, I would visit a lot. He was, you know, he was at that time, he had heart condition and, you know, so I would see him. But we interacted a lot and, and he was always just a great, interesting mind to interact with. Uh, he, he had, in terms of like doing his biography, I'm, I'm not sure I, I can really do it, except to say that he was someone who always somehow it was it was it's like a zealot kind of character you know like he would just go where it was most interesting to go and he grew up in montreal where many of the kids in montreal were in the young communist league um and he started writing and i, I guess it's around the age of 18 he uh writes something that catches the eye, eye of bethune who's in montreal at that point, uh, you know, very famous thoracic surgeon at McGill University Hospital, teaches there. Um, and Bethune used to have these salons where he would invite anyone he thought was interesting, intellectuals and artists, and, and, and this 18-year-old kid gets invited. Uh, and that's maybe more to the point of where Ted discovered art and culture because Bethune was a real Renaissance man. Uh, he was not just a great doctor um, and not just, uh, by, the, by this point in his life had become, I think he was already a member of the Communist Party, uh, but he certainly was reading Marx and Engels and uh, had become very political. And uh, so the people that are coming to this salon, these salons are all, you know, really, some of the leading intellectuals and progressive people of the time. And that's what starts to really shape Ted. And, uh, and then Bethune decides, 
I guess uh, partly on his own, partly in conjunction with the Canadian Communist Party, uh, to go to Spain and to uh, help the anti-fascist forces. And where, you know, I don't know how much, I guess most, most people don't know his story. Like he invents the first mobile blood transfusion unit where he figures out that the reason so many soldiers are dying in Spain is because they lose so much blood on their way back to the hospital. So he actually figures out, he was, a, he was really quite a genius. He figures out how to take blood plasma and, and make it safe to transport it for several hours. And he goes right up to the front lines, like just behind the front lines. So when a soldier's injured, they're getting blood transfusions you know, within minutes. And uh, so from what I know of Ted's life, you know, Bethune was, was a very big influence, especially those days in Montreal. And then Ted goes to, jo to join Bethune. I, I'm not sure he went to join Bethune. He went to be part of the fight in Spain. He actually uh, volunteers to fight in Spain. And uh, he's in the trenches for a little while. Uh, and then they've, the, uh, the leadership of the anti-fascist forces, both the communist and non-communist leadership of the anti-fascist forces, they find out that he's a writer and ask him to come back to Madrid and start writing reports for Canadian and American newspapers. And that's, you know, it goes on and on. I mean, his life is, Mordecai Richler once said, uh, I, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's something like Ted's writing is, is wonderful and his life is a masterpiece. Uh, he, 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 so Ted gets into the whole circles in Madrid of Hemingway and Bethune and uh, Gerda Taro, the uh, famous war photographer who he winds up having an affair with and she winds up dying, you know, practically in his arms. Uh, and uh, Robert Kappa, who was Gerda Taro's boyfriend, uh, leaves for China. And that's, that's after Kappa leaves for China that uh, Ted and Gerda get hook up. And, uh, but these are all legendary characters. And this kid, 18, 19, 20-year-old kid, is hanging out with all these legendary characters. So... Uh, there's actually an NFB documentary film about Ted Allen. I wasn't able to, to see it, but I know it's there. Have you seen it, Paul? You know, I, I probably have, but I don't remember it. Okay. It doesn't seem to be available on the NFB website. And I actually emailed them about it, and I never got a response. I would really love to see see that film and find out more, more about, um, more about uh, Ted Allen what could you say about his, uh, his work in, um, you know, either his, his uh, writing, his uh, work for the stage, or uh, his, his work in film? Well, let me talk a little bit more about his political evolution. Yeah, uh, please. Because, because he's, he writes at, at a time of great disillusionment. You know, he grows up. Uh, as many of his generation, uh, right through, you know, through the end of World War II, um, really believing the Soviet Union is the next hope for mankind, for humankind. And, and he gets to know, uh, especially after the 56 Khrushchev revelations about, you know, you know the, the crimes of Stalin and a lot of the things that people had been denying all this time, you know, turned out a lot of it was true. Uh, 
so he's part of that generation where it's a great disillusionment. And he also, as I say, Ted just knows so many famous people. He knows the guy who's the head of the Communist Party of Italy, and he's involved in these kinds of conversations with, with such people. Uh, Bertolt Brecht was was their babysitter in New York. I mean, it's crazy. He, I guess he needed, a, he needed a job as an immigrant. Yeah, he did. And they were friends in New York. And uh, uh, before Brecht went back to uh, East Germany, uh, again, because of the uh, House of Un-American Activities Committee and McCarthyism. Uh, but before that, uh, they used to hang out in New York together. Um, but so it, it, the play that was a big sort of uh, marker for him was something called The Secret of the World, uh, which was, uh, you know, staged in London. I, if, I, if my memory is correct, uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier was involved in the production. Uh, Richard Attenborough, I think, directed it. Uh, um, and so he became kind of a star in London. And it, the play is about the disillusionment with the communist movement. And I don't think Ted ever lost his progressive aspirations, his left-wing aspirations, uh, but he was very disillusioned, as were many, with what the Soviet Union turned out to be. Um, the, uh, but that he, it's, it kicked off for him uh, a real career in London as a playwright. Uh, then he had a big success in Paris with a play called Gog and Magog, where he actually made some money. And uh, although it's a funny story, he comes back from Secret of the World. And, you know, he used to write short stories all the time about his family, his mother and his father. And uh, he won a Leacock Award uh, for what, uh, based on what I'm about, the story I'm about to say. Right. The, uh, uh, he, the the award for um, Canadian humor writing. I think he won that that's in, right, in the yeah, 80s yeah. at some point. Yeah, what, that's right. What so year, he comes so can I just interrupt for a second? What year was the secret of the world or what, what time period? Is this um, late 50s or early 60s? I think it's 59 or 60, something like that. Excellent. And uh, anyway, he comes back. He's had this big success. Uh, and, and the secret of the world, there's a character based on his mother, there's a character based on his father, who keeps the secret of the world in a box that he won't show. Uh, and he comes back from London with this big success. And, and his father, my grandfather, who suffered from uh, manic depression and more depression than manic, although I guess he had his manic moments and was in and out of institutions for much of the 30s. My grandmother used to support the family by uh, organizing the local local poker game in, in Montreal. And uh, anyway, Ted comes back and Harry's sitting in the kitchen in the dark and Ted comes in. I, uh, Julie, his daughter, will, will get me if I don't tell this story right. But anyway, my memory is he comes back waiting to be all congratulated and his father looks up as he enters the kitchen and he says to Ted, he says, don't you know anybody else? Can't you write about somebody else? And that's actually the title of the book that of short stories that he wins the Leacock Award, which is don't you know anybody else? That's the title of the book. And then of course, his mother, after hearing about all the success 
in London, uh, at least the way Ted tells the story, she said, okay, now will you go and get that job at the hardware store? Because that's all they ever wanted was him to have his own hardware store. And in fact, when I used to go over there for dinners on Friday nights, they weren't religious, but they would do the chicken dinner every Friday night. My, my grandmother would teach me how to sell these little knickknacks to her because, you know, I was supposed to grow up and have a store too, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um, so anyway, ask me a question, I guess. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, your, this is a great place to get into your uncle's writing about Bethune. So in, um, in 1952, he, he co-authored an early biography of Bethune. It may have been the first one in English. I'm not sure, but it's one of the earliest. It's called The Scalpel and the Sword, and it was an international success. Um, and, and uh, you know, I think he made a bit of money on that from what I've been able to read about it. And, uh, you know, many, you know, many decades later in 1990, your uncle was, you know, pivotal in getting this movie about Bethune made as well. So you've already talked a little bit about your uncle's relationship with Bethune. Why do you think um, your uncle was so committed to uh, Bethune's legacy? Well, I think it's a combination of, of his personal connection to Bethune. I think at some point he describes Bethune like a father to him. Um, and, and Bethune was somebody completely larger than life. As much as I described Ted that way, uh, maybe Bethune was even more. Uh, this is a guy who's the child of uh, ministers that go off uh, preaching uh, the gospel and doing good works various places. He gets a job as a surgeon in Detroit and uh, and he's he discovers that tuberculosis is a class-based disease that people who are rich do not die of tuberculosis and people that are poor do and so while he's treating rich people uh, during the week on the weekends he sets up a free clinic and he starts experimenting on how to treat tuberculosis uh, and then at some point, he gets tuberculosis and starts experimenting on himself while he's in the sanatorium. Uh, he, uh, I think at one point, he, he experiments where I believe there's a point where you can puncture the lungs. You, you literally deflate a lung to give it a rest while it heals. It was this, very This scene is in the movie. Yeah. Right. So he, he does that himself. When he gets to Montreal, he experiments with the use of larvae and putting uh, larvae into the lungs to eat the diseased tissue. And apparently it was quite successful. Uh, he also invented uh, surgical instruments for use in thoracic surgery that had not been developed before. And then they became standard instruments for surgeons around the world. And he was a writer, he was a poet. He, he, he just was a, a real Renaissance guy. So he's very influential on Ted. When Ted starts going to these salons, um, and then when he gets to Spain, and, and he's in the trenches, then he's called back to be a writer, then he, he connects with Bethune, then Bethune wants, you know, says, well, come on, join me, and start, you can report on and help uh, in the medical unit, the blood transfusion unit. And Ted does get involved. <clears throat> so, and Ted has this, uh, the way, you know, this is me, repeating the way Ted tells the story, because I, I would, don't know it really any other way. Uh, but Ted has a very idealized version of Bethune. Um, and the idea is that if you are a communist and if you are true to what you believe, 
then you live a pure life. And your personal life uh, has to be as pure as your political beliefs. So he gets to Spain and he finds out that uh, Bethune likes to drink a lot and he likes to go to bed with women a lot. And, and, and the way tells, Ted tells the story, especially of the drinking side, uh, that it get, he gets very disillusioned with Beth Ewan because he goes into temper tantrums and I guess he seems egotistical. And um, so, so as I understand the story, the Communist Party actually asks Ted to write a report on Beth Ewan. And he does. And the report is critical of Beth Ewan's behavior. And at some point, the Canadian Party actually orders Beth Ewan back to Canada. And, uh, and Beth Ewan had a lot of fights with bureaucrats from the party and, and in the leadership because uh, he had lots of experimental ways he thought they should be doing the medicine and they didn't like it. And, and I don't remember all the details. But Ted, one, felt um, disillusioned by Beth Ewan's behavior. Now, I don't even know if Beth Ewan's behavior actually was bad or that bad. I'm just telling the story as I've heard it. But then Ted felt terrible that the report he wrote wound up uh, bringing Bethune back to Canada. Bethune goes on to become a hero of socialist, socialized medicine in Canada. He actually fills Maple Leaf Gardens uh, to capacity. So this is what, 20,000 people, to hear him speak about the need for socialized medicine in Canada. And eventually, we, we, we do get that. Um, but at that time, it was very controversial. This is after Bethune's return from Spain, uh, before, yeah, going, and before going to China. Before going to China. And, and then he goes to China. I, I believe more or less on his own violation. I don't, he, I don't think he goes, if my memory serves me right, because the party says, OK, go, or even agrees. I think he just goes. But, but I may be wrong about that. Um, so then Ted. If I, as I understand the story, when Ted starts to understand what Bethune accomplished in China, and that he really, you know, quote unquote, became a hero, uh, and how he set up the uh, whole hospital uh, system and structure for Mao Zedong's People's Liberation Army, and then dies in a way that he essentially sacrificed himself. He had medicine he could have used on himself. He cut himself and dies of the infection because there's no medicine anymore. But the way Mao Zedong tells the story, and I, and, and I don't have any reason not to believe this because I think there's lots of uh, such recounting of this, Bethune became such a hero that Chinese uh, Liberation Army soldiers used to go into battle, and I think this is in the movie, saying Bethune is with us. And it was partly that because he gave them such confidence because they had an actual hospital to go back to, again, near the front lines. So th this made a big difference to Ted, too, uh, that, that it turned out that actually Bethune, in the end, did live up to what Ted, Ted's sort of idealized version of him. And so I think, you know, uh, he felt at that point that, you know, that it was, you know, because he knew the story. And also, as a writer, you're always looking for a good story anyway. So when you have a connection to somebody who's such a good story, you write about it. So it was a combination of feeling a personal connection to Bethune and the importance of the story. So the, the Scalp of the Sword was the first work. And then for years, he tried to get the film off the ground. And 
you know, eventually, with the help of his daughter and her production partner, that they finally did get it off the ground. My understanding is that he had a script about Bethune already in 1942 that had been sold to 20th Century Fox, um, but was never produced. And yeah, there were kind of false starts several times in the, the many decades in between uh, then in 1990. Well, let me, let me just say one thing. In 1942, uh, the Hollywood 10, the left-wingers and communists in Hollywood were still very popular and strong. Of course, as you, you know, especially after the war, uh, they do everything they can to purge them. So there's no way a script about a, some Canadian communist doctor is going to get made. It, it takes many decades until essentially the end of the Cold War that it, that it seems to be able to get made. And um, I have to admit, you know, researching the production of this film was, was a lot of fun. And I have to say, like, especially some of the melodrama that comes out between uh, Donald Sutherland, who plays Bethune, and, and your uncle, and I guess people, kind of the production team who are sort of, I seems to be aligned with, with, Ted, with Ted Allen's vision of the film. And um, I guess this is a time also before non-disclosure agreements because it all takes place like publicly in the press. Uh, it's reported on quite thoroughly by McLean's magazine. Uh, since you are a filmmaker yourself, I imagine that you were rather interested in what your uncle was doing with this film in 1990 and the years before. So from your point of view, you know, what can you say about the production process? Do you have any firsthand experience of it? And you know, what, what are some of your thoughts on the film? Uh, well, you know, the truth is I wasn't very connected to it. I talked a bit you know, about with Ted when he's writing the script, but um, I was very involved in my own work. And uh, so I would hear some stories, but I, I can't offer a lot because uh, I, I, all I, you know, I, uh, the Sutherland thing, the, I only know the same thing you know, the basic story, which was that uh, Sutherland agreed to do a script that Ted had written. And that's how the film was financed, and everyone had agreed, you know, this is the script. Because you need a star, and, right? You need a big star on a project too, right? Yeah, and but you know, you, you do obviously get rewrites in the course of shooting, but the star doesn't normally completely take over and try to rewrite, you know, restructure the whole script. And I know one of the financiers of the film. I was just reading, actually today I was reading something about it. No, he said, you know, if Sutherland didn't like the script, he shouldn't have done the film. But you don't, in China, in the midst of very difficult uh, conditions of producing, especially back then in China, I mean, China wasn't this advanced country it is now, uh, you don't re try to restructure the whole thing. But the director sided with uh, Borso, sided with Sutherland, and I don't think he had much choice. Uh, Sutherland, you know, Sutherland had such clout. So it created a lot of difficulties. Uh, but other than that, I, I can't say much. I know it was just a difficult shoot. and and so on um but uh, as so i can't i can't add much to what sure uh, you you probably know more about it than i do well i just i just know what i've read and uh, so the shoot is on location in china in the wutai mountain regions i guess several other places too but it's quite remote uh, especially at this time so it's uh, i think it's described that you know it takes 12 hours driving to make a phone call uh, the film has to be you know sent to canada for processing before it can be viewed and uh, there's the, you know, the regular, I suppose, problems communicating 
uh, in another language and through another culture with people um, between the, the Canadian and Chinese uh, people working on this. So, yeah, you described Donald Sutherland on location, so removed from some, from, I mean, Ted wasn't there, right? He didn't go to China. Uh, he or, was or was he? Yeah, oh, yeah, he was there for a while. And then he oh, went. for a while, okay. But yeah. it was a rather long shoot, so I suppose when he's, he's not around, I describe it something as, I describe it as a coup, <laughs> that it seemed like Donald Sutherland was trying, maybe trying to lead. Uh, I'm not yeah, sure I, if that's I, liable. So, <laughs> maybe well, I should say. No, nah, I don't. I, well, not if it's true. Yeah, I think it's true. Uh, Sutherland had a script he wanted made and yeah. couldn't get off the ground. Right. And and the way I understand it, and this is obviously, you know, through Ted's perspective and Julie's perspective, but also people that have reported on it. And, mm -hmm. and uh, Sutherland really just wanted to make the film he'd always imagined. And 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 if he he should have done that, he should have gone off and got you know tried to get it financed. But you don't agree to do a film based on this script and then try to turn it into the project you wanted to do. I, I can't get into even the right or wrong of it, like about who was right about this scene or that scene. I don't even know, and I don't remember any of it. All I know is that basic thing is that you know Sutherland, don't do the film if you don't like the script. Donald Sutherland felt some ownership over the character of Norman Bethune because he had already played Bethune uh, for CBC television in uh, 1977, I believe. And so I think that's when um, Donald Sutherland developed a version of Bethune that he became quite attached to. And, and, uh, and he even, I remember seeing an interview with, with Sutherland in 1977, him talking about wanting to make a big, a big film version of Bethune's life if he ever could do it. So it really took uh, it took you know this 1990 project with with your uncle aboard to to really make it happen. Yeah, I mean he had he had his own dream of the film he wanted, and which is all well and good, but you can't convert someone else's film and script and dream into yours just because you're a star. And I think that what's happened what happened, but I, I more than that I don't know. You know, it, it is fascinating looking back um, from, you know, this year, 2021, you know, that uh, Canada-China co-production like this really could be made at all. Of course, you know, as I mentioned in my introduction, the elite consensus on China, you know, was different then, and it certainly seems to have changed since then. So getting into the politics of it now, you know, from tr Trump's trade tariffs to the Trudeau government arresting Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou, uh, you know, there's an obvious anti-China turn in policy and in the way the media talks about China. And, uh, you know, some have been calling this a new Cold War. And just to prove my minor point here, that a movie about Norman Bethune that can't, can't really get made today, in fact, there is a major new Bethune biopic that's being produced by Canadian Chinese partners, but it's been put on hold. Chinese authorities who are funding it, Apparently, uh, you know, they're resisting greenlighting a film that involves Canadian producers, it seems. So what do you make of this escalation of hostility and the rhetoric between the West and China? Uh, because in 1990, it really wasn't like this. So um, why now? Well, let, well, let's go back, first of all, to sure. why the film gets, why okay. the film gets made. Sure. Because I think it's important that people understand that while objectively, Bethune was probably the most famous Canadian in the world, even though that was mostly in China. 
that's still a lot of a lot of people and i don't think yeah. there was any other canadian in the world that had as many people that knew of him than bethune in china but not only in china because anyone that was involved with knowing about China, and uh, there were a lot of, you know, China friendship organizations or communist parties or left-wing organizations. So Bethune was a, an enormous figure in the world. He was a zero in Canada. Nobody knew about him. The, 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 he wasn't taught in the schools. The government did nothing to promote his, uh, his memory. And no wonder, and it wasn't just because he'd been connected to the Canadian Communist Party, uh, but uh, which of course was a big deal. Uh, 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 but it was also, he was, he was a serious political being. He wasn't just uh, a guy who was a hero, a romantic. Uh, uh, you know, I think you called him swashbuckling. He was swashbuckling, but he wasn't just that. And I want to read something to you which will give people an idea of just how serious a political person Bethune was. And you'll understand why Canadian government for a long time uh, never wanted any Canadian or anyone else to actually know about this guy. So in 1939, Bethune writes this article uh, called The Wounds. And this is just a little excerpt from it, which, which I'm gonna read. So he, this is 1939, so this is after the Spanish Civil War, uh, the beginnings of, of World War II, Bethune writes. And he's, uh, but at this point, he's already been to, uh, he's already in China. So he, the, he's, he's seeing the slaughter of, of Chinese and Japanese workers, which is what he talks about in the beginning of this article. Then he writes, are wars of aggression wars for the conquest of colonies then just big business? Yes, it would seem so, however, however much the perpetrators of such national crimes seek to hide their true purpose under banners of high-sounding abstractions and ideals. They make war to capture markets by murder, raw materials by rape. They find it cheaper to steal than to exchange, easier to butcher than to buy. This is the secret of war. This is the secret of all wars. Profit, business, profit blood money behind all stands that terrible implacable god of business and blood whose name is profit money like an insatiable moloch and i just lurked looking that up this is a figure from the bible where apparently israelites used to sacrifice children to i mean literally sacrifice uh moloch which is obviously the right metaphor here because that's what war is, sacrificing children, demands, the Moloch demands its interest, its return, and will stop at nothing, not even the murder of millions to satisfy its greed. Behind the army stands the militarists. Behind the militarists stands finance capital and the capitalist, brothers in blood, companions in crime. What do these enemies of the human race look like? Do they wear on their foreheads a sign so that they may be told, shunned, and condemned as criminals? No, on the contrary, they are the respectable ones. They are honored. They call themselves and are called gentlemen. What a travesty on the name, gentlemen. They are the pillars of the state, of the church, of society. They support private and public charity out of the excess of their wealth. They endow institutions in their private lives they are kind and considerate. They obey the law, their law, the law of property. 
But there's one sign by which these gentle gunmen can be told. Threaten a reduction on the profit of their money, and the beast in them awakes with a snarl. They become ruthless as savages, brutal as madmen, remorseless as executioners. Such men as these must perish if the human race is to continue. There can be no permanent peace in the world while they live. Such an organization of human society as permits them to exist must be abolished. These men make the wounds. So you can understand why the Canadian government was not so eager to have Bethune taught in Canadian schools. Certainly, that's a very powerful passage. And I actually think, uh, I believe Donald, Donald Sutherland first encountered Bethune through a reading of wounds he uh, heard at a, uh, an anti-Vietnam War protest uh, in 1969. So he references this essay too. It's very powerful. And you can see why in the, yeah, as you said, in the, certainly at the height of the Cold War, Canadian government is not keen on um, adopting Bethune as a, a national hero, uh, as a figure of significance. This does begin to change, as I write about in my essay, in the early 1970s. There is, of course, the opening of China to the West, to Western capitalism, that I guess you'd say begins with, or uh, I guess you would say begins with Richard Nixon visiting China in 1972. And Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister, follows him soon after in 1973. Certainly Trudeau is on the vanguard of like, op opening relations with China. And part of, part of his uh, approach is a cultural one. And so what you see beginning in, in the early 1970s is the, uh, the slow adoption of Norman Bethune as a figure who can bridge these two cultures. Of course, Trudeau, knowing that Bethune is a hero in China, um, the same year that Trudeau visits China in 1973, he has the Department of External Affairs of Canada buys Norman Bethune's birth home in Gravenhurst, Ontario, and it soon becomes a national historic site. And it's, it's in those years of the early 70s where interest in Bethune begins to expand in Canada. And so in Canada, where cultural production, where academic research is highly uh, dependent on the, the government, because it's funded through arts agencies and humanity, the you know humanities councils, uh, it seems like there's money available to research Bethune all of a sudden, and so there's an explosion of interest in Bethune. Many books come out about him, and your uncle's 1952 book, uh, The Scalpel and the Sword, is reissued as well. And so it's part of this whole new interest in Bethune in the 70s, including the CBC production that that comes out in 1977 that I already mentioned. Donald Sutherland is recruited to, to star in and is very interested to play. So this sort of opening uh, begins uh, in the 70s. And what's so fascinating um, is that in Canada, Bethune himself becomes a figure who uh, facilitates this, this, this diplomacy. Well, this is, this, this is what's uh, it's such hypocrisy on the part of the Canadian government. You know, they completely ignore this guy because of his politics. And then, because they see this enormous opening uh, for Canadian commodity sales and, and manufactured goods to China, um, that all of a sudden they turn, now they turn Bethune into the symbol of Canada-China trade. I remember they would take, the, when Chinese delegations would come over, they would take them up to Gravenhurst to see that house, that, which they turned into the Bethune Museum. And, you know, no, they couldn't give a damn about him. 
uh, as a Canadian figure, but if he can make some money, because I mean, Canada foreign policy is about nothing but trade. Uh, the China gambit for the Canadian government was sort of like Cuba. Uh, and, uh, you know, Trudeau gets a lot of credit for the development of Canadian Cuban relations, but it actually was not Trudeau, it was Diefenbaker that established the relationship with uh, Cuba. And it was Diefenbaker that actually defied the Americans to develop a Canadian uh, presence in Cuba, which opened up a market for Canadian goods and services uh, where the Americans were refusing to sell to Cuba. And there's somewhat similar thing going on with China that Canadians saw a chance at this enormous market that Canada might be able to get their hooks into it uh, in a way the U.S. couldn't. And so for a while, yeah, it was Bethune everything. And, but, you know, but, but stripping Bethune of his revolutionary essence. Absolutely. And in the 1970s, you know, Canada, there's like a market left turn, you know, in, in Canadian politics, as there, there, are, there is in many parts of the world, at least the early parts of the 70s. And what, you, what the Canadian government can do with Bethune at that moment is turn him into a national figure. Um, it's, it's because also, it's partly because um, Healthcare, Medicare, our national Medicare program, which really goes into full effect in the late 60s, uh, really is consonant with this figure of Bethune, who, as you said, he was an advocate of public health care. It was one of the major reasons that he was a communist. He saw that that was a service that communism could provide to the people. And so all of a sudden, that part of Bethune's legacy as a doctor in support of national health care is totally consonant with the Canadian government's position. You mentioned, Paul, that Canada's foreign policy is really just about trade. And, you know, I would agree with you. Of course, the advertised version of Canada's foreign policy is rather different. It's about humanitarianism and peacekeeping. And again, Bethune could be recuperated as that kind of a figure, right? As a humanitarian who went abroad, a kind of early doctor without borders, to help the people of China. And so, yes, stripped of the communist part, it just seems like he's being, he's being nice to, uh, to foreigners. So. That's partly why this can begin in the 70s. And, um, and that's when I think you start to see, um, I'm actually, I'm not sure when the statues of Bethune go up, but I know there is, the, currently there's a statue of Norman Bethune in Montreal, uh, next to Concordia University, the metro station there. I think that's the first time I personally encountered Bethune is when I went to Montreal as a university student in the early 2000s. Um, and, you know, certainly in the years since getting back to this movie, which was made in 1990 after the official end of the Cold War, this uh, certainly since this moment in time, Bethune has become a much more recognizable figure. Uh, I think it's 2000 and it's either 2003, 2006, where there's these like periodically these lists used to come out about the most famous Canadians or the most important Canadians kind of polls put together by the CBC. And Bethune, you know, appears in the in probably the top 20 of that list. Um, there how are rec how how recently? This is two. This would be uh, early mid two thousands. Um, uh, you know the one of the reasons I wanted to write about this movie and get into Bethune a little bit is because I think that his memory has diminished somewhat s since that time. But um, certainly in early yeah in the early two thousands, Bethune can is recognized as a as a Canadian hero, part of the pantheon. You know, Tommy Douglas is like number one on that list when it comes out. We're in, um, we're at the end of the Cold War 
1990. And so a film like a Canada, you know, a, a Canada-China co-production could be made. Now, this was funded by, you know, the Canadian government. There was major money from Telefilm Canada, the, uh, you know, to, to fund this. And uh, that was a sign of the times, you know, in 1990. I mean, is there something you want to say about um, the end of the Cold War and the rapprochement with China, Paul? Yeah, well, he be Bethune becomes the symbol to use to promote Canadian-China trade. Yeah. Uh, now, as trade starts to become far more normalized and lots of countries get in on it, including the U.S., uh, you know, you start having American corporations, uh, especially when you start getting into the late 70s and early 80s with globalization, uh, with, with a, the digital revolution. So globalization is now uh, computerized. And so, you know, you get the Walmart supply chains and such where they can start playing cheap Chinese labor off against uh, American and Canadian labor. Uh, the issue of China, uh, Canada having a special relationship with the Chinese kinds of fades. In fact, in many ways, I think the Americans become far more dominant. And so Bethune's use is also starts to fade. It also coincides with Mao Zedong uh, and the uh, Teng Xiaoping and the rise in China of essentially what Mao used to call capitalist rotors. Uh, so when you start getting the restoration of capitalism in China, uh, they're also not as interested in Bethune anymore. They're, they're really not even all that interested in Mao Zedong really anymore. And they, again, he becomes just a iconic figure. Bethune uh, so was, was part of Mao's legacy, uh, having known well, one Mao of, one personally, of, who wrote, Mao well, famously wrote, an essay on the occasion of Norman Bethune's death in praise of his self-sacrifice, I believe the essay is titled. Yeah, it was called, I think it was called Serve the People, and it was all about that Bethune was the symbol of internationalism, that a Canadian would come to China and sacrifice his life for the Chinese people. I was going to say that essay becomes standard reading uh, in the late right. 60s during the Cultural Revolution, of course, led by led by Mao. So he's, Norman Bethune is very attached to, yeah, to, to kind of Mao's legacy that is being diminished. Yeah, so as, as you start to have this transformation of China and the development of capitalism in China, uh, Mao is diminished and uh, certainly Bethune gets diminished. So at a time before when probably every single Chinese person knew who Bethune was, I, what I understand is now most Chinese, especially younger Chinese people, probably never heard of him. So he's lost, he's, he's no longer some vehicle uh, for Canadian trade. And because of who he really was, uh, he's, he is the opposite of the kind of hero that the Canadian elites want to promote. So he's kind of once again disappeared, at least from the elite uh, history of Canada. But now that you got me talking about it, and now that the, you know today we're doing the interview on March 3rd and tomorrow is the 131st anniversary of Bethune's birth, I think I'm going to do a whole reading of the wounds and put it up on the website so at least people know uh, what Bethune stood for. Great idea. But as far as the more recent times go, yeah, um, it's it's a story I guess people know. I mean, China has now emerged as as a, an economy uh, probably around the same size or close to the same size as the American economy now. Um, not as not a global military power the way United States is, but 
than no one else is. Uh, but China is a place you, the Americans cannot screw around with. It's just way too big a market. So the Americans are afraid of being shut out of that market. On the other hand, the Chinese are competing with the Americans all over the world, uh, in Africa and Latin America, Asia. There's m many, many countries where China's now their number one trading partner, not the United States. So the, the threat to U.S. Uh, hegemony, uh, predominance in the world, uh, there's never been a challenger like China. The Soviet Union was never a challenger. You know, ideologically, culturally, it inspired for a time national liberation movements, um, but it was never a global military threat. And, uh, and economically, it was never, even though it was a large economy, it was never a challenge uh, to American uh, domination of any market. I mean, maybe India a little bit used to play the Soviet Union off against the Americans, but nothing like the Chinese. Ch the Chinese are the first real challenge to the American post-World War II supremacy, and they're not going anywhere. So, and the United States still has not figured out what to do with it. And right now you've got the Biden administration. Uh, I just interviewed a guy named Chaz Freeman who used to be, in fact, he was the interpreter when Nixon met Mao and then he became an ambassador to China. And he's now an advocate for, you know, a, a non-antagonistic relationship with China. But he says Biden's uh, China policy is essentially Trump, but more polite. I mean, quite antagonistic without the inflammatory rhetoric. And in fact, I'm gonna be publishing this interview with Chaz Freeman like in the next day or two. It's, it's very interesting. Um, so, uh, so for sure, nobody wants to make a film about Bethune now in China or in Canada. Uh, maybe the Chinese might have, because it's just on the face of it, it's a good story. But now there's this antagonism with Canada because of the arrest of the uh, Chinese executive by the Canadians under the pressure of the U.S. and the, the way the Canadian foreign policy people go along with all the antagonistic rhetoric against China. Um, so, you know, this Canadian-Chinese love affair is, is over. Well, if it's the anniversary of uh, Bethune's uh, birth soon, well, then maybe we should celebrate by listening to your reading of The Wounds, as well as watching Bethune, The Making of a Hero, which is available on YouTube from the Encore streaming service for free. So I would encourage everyone to go check that, check out the film. Also read my article in Passage about the film. No, I think that's, I think it's good. I think it's very important that Canadians uh, do not forget about Bethune because it's not just about him. It's the whole political tradition he represents is uh, being marginalized and, and in terms of mainstream culture uh, it's a, it, they would like to pretend it never exists. And, uh, and in terms of the challenges we face today, uh, you know, that, that essay, The Wounds, when he goes through the crimes of this class and this system, uh, now to war, you can add the climate crisis and the role that Canadian fossil fuels play in this. And, and, you know, when you say these, the, it's these people that make the wounds, the system that makes the wounds, you know, we're facing an existential wound. 
And it's, it's the kind of politics and memory of Bethune, I think, are going to be critical to inspiring people to the kind of fight that needs to be waged here. It's about this question of memory, historical memory. You know, I studied a lot of Canadian literature. I was in school for a long time doing, doing just that. And a name I never came across uh, was Ted Allen. Uh, and I, so I was so surprised to find out about his, his wonder, some of his wonderful work. I wonder, I have an idea about why maybe he hasn't entered the Canadian canon. Do you, do you have any thoughts on why perhaps Ted Allen's work is not part of official Canadian literature? Yeah, because he never renounced his communism. He was extremely critical of the Soviet Union, of Stalin. Um, he wasn't, I, you know, I, I would say for most of his career as a professional, he was not connected with that kind of direct left-wing politics and activism. But he never renounced what he kind of believed about socialism and such. And so even though objectively, there's not a lot of Canadian writers that were as successful as he was, just purely in terms of mainstream measurement of success. I th yeah, I think it's because of the same reason they don't want Bethune to have existed. Uh, you know, they're, uh, they're just not interested. I mean, I'll tell you, honestly, maybe this is hubris on my part, but how come nobody knows who I am in Canada? You know, if you look I at know what I yeah, okay, I shouldn't say nobody, but my profile is extremely low for someone who's had some of the biggest, most successful documentaries ever, like my Hitman Heart documentary. You know, most people, uh, critics have rated it in the top 10, not just Canadian docs, but even more so, but certainly in terms of Canadian docs, uh, the Hot Docs Film Festival, I was executive producer of Counterspin, the, the debate show, uh, national debate show for 10 years. Uh, you know, I have a real track record. I'll pump Nobody, your ego no, a bit on that documentary about uh, Brett the Hitman Hart. Wonderful work. And I'm actually researching something being based in Calgary. The Hitman legacy is strong. And, uh, and wrestling here is, has an interesting cultural footprint. That, so I'll be actually writing about wrestling in the near future. And I'm sure I'll be referring to your documentary there yeah well but my, but my point is is that and if you look objectively at my quote unquote accomplishments because i actually don't care much about the accomplishments i mean i'm not a great self-promoter which is part of the problem you sound pretty but, good right now <laughs> well because i'm in my my world my venue my camera I, I can do what i want yeah but that said uh when's the last time anybody wrote anything about me in canada years and years and years why i think for the same reason you know with ted and that is that i you know when when i talk i don't compromise on what i believe politically and 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 you know and and, and that's not it's not just for me i was there's all kinds of people on the left in canada who have accomplished much and are you know do very important work writing research and such who get zero, when do they show up on TV? In fact, you know, when I was exec producer of Counterspin, for, for, you know, for a daily show for 10 years, a debate show, we used to get the real left on television in Canada. That was because, you know, I was able to balance it by getting the right on, otherwise the left can't get on. But, but not the liberal left. The real left used to get on Counterspin. And, Hosted by Abby Lewis. For a time by Avi and Carol Off, yeah. 
And I was the, I was the exec producer with Ron Haggard. But after that show went off the air, the left almost never gets on on television. And, 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 and when, when's the last time I got invited to comment on a political issue? Now, I have a pretty big following online. I know one or two things. I never get invited anywhere. Never. Zero. Not Canadian radio, not Canadian television. And I, I, I you know, I, I, I don't want to be arrogant about this, but there's a lot of these issues I can talk about as well or better than the pundits that they get. It's purely a, a, a class political prism. And the same thing in the yeah. U.S. You know, like a guy, I was just interviewing uh, Thomas Frank, who wrote What's the Matter with Kansas, which was a best-selling novel. Big fan. He gets invited nowhere now in terms of mainstream TV because he critiques the Democratic Party. I, I think people should really, especially the CBC as a public broadcaster, uh, there should be serious complaints with the CBC. You know, there's other countries who have public broadcasters that, that are far more open to left voices uh, than here. I mean, I was just, uh, just talking to uh, Alexander Buzgalin, uh, who's a, a professor of Marxism in Moscow. And he gets a little bit of time on mainstream Russian television. I honestly, the, the, you know, all this complaints about Russian censorship, and there is, I'm not saying there isn't, but uh, there, there actually some actual left voices are getting on uh, Russian television. I'm not sure how many real left voices get on Canadian TV. Anyway, I think people, sh there needs to be a fight over what happens at CBC. Like even, even Counterspin, you can't get Counterspin on CBC now. A real, you know, legitimate debate show. I, I'm, I'm actually not watching CBC that much, pre precisely for these reasons. So uh, thank you, everybody, for watching and listening. Uh, the video will be available on Sweater Weather. It'll also be available on, on Paul's uh, TheAnalysis.News feed. Uh, so look for it in both places. And uh, Paul, thank you very much for, for talking with me today. Thanks very much, Aaron.